Welcome back, everybody. This is going to be the second episode or the continuation of the last episode talking about the institution of the ministerial priesthood of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And then kind of keeping with that, uh, those verses I was just talking about, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, when he gave Peter and the apostles the authority to bind and to loose, um, this also is a term for interpreting the law. So in the Old Testament, the priests had responsibility for teaching and interpreting the law. You're going to see that in Numbers 31.21, Deuteronomy 17.18, and 31.9, 33.10, and then 2 Kings 17.27, and 2 Chronicles 15.3. Uh, Ezra in 7.12 and verse 21, and Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2 and 9, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 8, and chapter 18, verse 18, and Ezekiel chapter 7 and 22 and 44, and Zephaniah in chapter 3, and then in Malachi in chapter 2. So there's a lot, right? So especially in Deuteronomy in chapter 17, where so these difficult questions of interpreting the law are handed over to the Levitical priest. And you see that in Haggai uh, as well in chapter 2, verse 10 through 14, where the prophet instructs the people to go ask the priest how to interpret the law of cleanliness, right? So God gives the law, right? So this this divine law is given to Moses and to the to the Israelites, right? But then there's all these things within it that's hard to interpret. It's just like the U.S. Constitution. Well, then there's a Supreme Court behind it too. It's just like the Bible. We need a, an authoritative voice because we have thousands and thousands of denominations saying that they're all following the Bible, that we're interpreting it right. Well, Jesus gave us a church to interpret it right, and he gave it to Peter and the apostles, and that is only found in the Catholic Church, where it is this unbroken, authoritative, and that's how you hold truth together. That's how you protect the truth. That's how you protect interpreting the law that Jesus gave to Peter and the apostles in Matthew 16 and 18. And um, and, and this is not just on like small matters, right? So in Matthew 18, when Jesus tells all of his apostles that you have the power to bind and to loose, he gives it in the context of a disagreement happening, right? So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him. And if he doesn't listen to you, take two or three witnesses. If he doesn't uh, listen to them, take him to the church. If he doesn't even listen to the church, then treat him like a Gentile, right? So treat him like, okay, he's an outsider, right? And then you even see St. Paul talking about that in one of his epistles where in the, that that they are judging people within the household of God and outside of that, that's for God to judge, right? And that's not saying just be whimsical about stuff. They're just saying that they have authority within the church, right? That St. Paul has as an apostle. But so this, this, uh, the structure that Jesus establishes for his church and not Bible and Matthew 18, where he says, take it to the church. Um, if your brother doesn't listen to you or to two or three witnesses, this is exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 15, where they cannot settle this matter. Even the incredible St. Paul himself, they're all arguing with St. Paul and others talking about if uh, Gentile converts to Christianity need to be circumcised and follow that custom of uh, Judaism in order to become Christians. And so what do they do? They take it to the church. And who is the church? We see Peter stand up on, him, on behalf of him and the apostles 
And he says, he declares this, uh, this dogma in Acts 15 that no, you do not have to follow the, the Mosaic law in order to become Christian. You don't have to become Jewish in order to become Christian. And what happens? Everybody's satisfied. They distribute all these letters to all the churches so that everybody knows and as everyone, everyone's on the same page. And that's exactly what the Catholic Church has done since that time when Peter and the apostles did it in Acts chapter 15. They have the sole authority to bind and to loose, right? So Jesus gives his priest that, uh, um, that responsibility of interpreting the law. So then this fourth piece of serving the temple, which is just, I think, one of the most profound. And, and I think it's going to be really cool just to see this being drawn out in the Gospel of John. And we're going to go through the Gospel of John at some point because you see his theology really build on all the sacraments and uh, and Mary and all of these things, right? And it just goes to show the development of the church, which is always happening, right? So Jesus said, he didn't say, I give you this Bible and that's the truth. It's all there, which it, which it is, right? But he says, go and the Holy Spirit will lead you into all the truth, right? So as time goes on, there's going to be all these disagreements and uh, dissensions and the church is going to hold that one voice of truth. And, uh, and that is what's going to happen. Uh, You're going to see all in the gospel of John where there's this development, right? So he's the last gospel. He wrote, writes it to the year 90 and it's completely different from the synoptic gospels gospels because he's writing it because there is heretics saying that Jesus wasn't divine. So, so John has so many things in mind. He has a sacramental theology. You see all seven sacraments of the Catholic church in there. They're called signs, right? So the gospel of John is broken up into the the book of signs and the book of glory and the, all those book of signs are pointing to different sacraments of the that are only found in the catholic church and then you see this development of a better understanding of jesus a better understanding of the church a better understanding of mary and all of these things right and that's what's happening all the time this truth is true because it was handed from Jesus and the apostles, but there's always a development and a better understanding um, that's hap- that's always happening in the church. And Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. And those truths are really battled out. And when there's heresies that pop up or battles that come up, right? So you see that in every single church council, like you see in Acts chapter 15. Well, what's the truth? Do Christians need to, uh, Gentile Christians need to become Jewish first? And then the church is led by the Holy Spirit. Nope, they don't. So anyways, I just went on a rant, but uh, the Gospel of John is just absolutely incredible. It's mind-blowing. I think as uh, Catholics, we don't take scripture uh, serious enough in the depths of it because it is extremely Catholic. And uh, and I think outside of the Catholic Church and Catholic theology and without reading the Church Fathers in history, we truly don't give the Word of God, which which it is, the, the, um, the depths, the... Uh, the appreciation of the depth of and the breadth of it because a lot of it we're always trying to see like well it's an either or like this scripture has to mean this or it means this well in catholic theology and it's always been applied this way is that it can be a both and and there's always this typology happening right so you see fulfillments in the old testament or in the new testament from uh things that were happening in the old testament that pointed to the new testament so serving the temple uh, we're going to see this. And uh, so in John chapter 14, verse two through three, Jesus says that line, in my father's house are many rooms. So this term uh, for it really means place, right? In, the, in Hebrew, it's makom, Greek, it's t- uh, topos or topos. And it's usually meant for sacred place or specifically the temple. As we see in John 11, 40, uh, uh, chapter 
11, verse 47, the priests refer to the temple as their place in Greek, topos or topos. And so my father's house, which Jesus refers, uh, uses to refer to the temple, and he uses that in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, uh, and the idea that there's many rooms. So since the temple in the Old Testament was the largest building in the entire nation and filled with an abundance of storage chambers, so Jesus is preparing a temple for his new priests to serve in. In one sense, this temple is the church, right? So as we see from the temple imagery applied in the church, uh, to the church in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 19 through 22, which I'll read really quick if I can flip to it. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens and the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built into it for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So uh, there it is again, talking about a sacred place, right? Or the temple. So this temple image in John 14 fits into the larger pattern of priestly imagery that runs through the entire Last Supper discourse that we see in John chapter 13 through 17. So this is the longest stretch of teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. So this discourse begins with priestly imagery in the foot washing episode in John 13 and ends with the priestly imagery in the high priestly prayer of John 17. So we're going to walk through those chapters. So this foot washing episode in John 13 is, a, is full of motifs from the Day of Atonement and priestly ordination rituals that happened in the Old Testament. So the Day of Atonement, or a lot of people know it as Yom Kippur, was the holiest days of the Jewish calendar. And this was when the high priest entered the, to the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple and made atonement for all the people once a year. So, um, and this is drawn out from a... Uh, uh, a Catholic theologian. He was a convert from from uh, he was a Protestant convert to the Catholic Church. His name is Leroy uh, Huizinga. That that showed me at least in in, in his book um, all these different parallels. So in John thirteen we find parallels to Leviticus sixteen. So John thirteen to Leviticus sixteen, uh, where there's a day of atonement ritual, right? So in Leviticus chapter sixteen verse twenty three through twenty four it reads this. Then Aaron, the high priest, shall come into the tent of meeting and shall put off the linen garments which he puts on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water and in a holy place and put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. So observe this pattern, right? So the high priest, so in what we just read, the high priest does this. He undresses, he bathes, he dresses and offers sacrifice. In John 13, Jesus undresses in verse 4, washes the disciples' feet in verses 5 through 11, he dresses in verse 12, and then he will soon offer himself in sacrifice on the cross. Well, and he really offered himself in sacrifice at Last Supper when he said, this is my body given for you. That's when his sacrifice begins and it ends on the cross. So whereas in Leviticus, the high priest washes all of himself, in John, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. He must wash them, i.e. ordain them as priests, lest they have no part in his priesthood. So the washing of the feet also connotes the role of the priesthood, right? So as we just went through, but because the priest had to wash their feet to perform any ministry in the sanctuary, according to Exodus chapter 30, verse 19 through 21. So prior to this, 
at their ordination, they had a full bath. So prior to the Old Testament um, ministry, when the priest would wash their feet, right prior to this, you see in Leviticus 8, chapter 6, they had a full bath. So we even see Peter and Jesus dis- discussing this full bath versus the washing of just the feet in John uh, chapter 13, verse 6 through 10. So in that same passage, Jesus insists Peter must submit to the washing of the feet in John. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, he must submit to washing washing in order to have a part, Greek, which is maris, uh, in Jesus. So this word, maris, the Greek word maris, is used several times in the Pentateuch to refer to the fact that the Levitical priests have no part in the land because their part is in God alone. And you see that in Numbers 18.20 and in Deuteronomy 10.9, in chapter and verse 29, and Josh 18.7. So the analogy is clear, right? So Peter is being prepared for a new kind of priesthood wherein his part is going to be God alone. This is to say Jesus alone. Also, Jesus tells the 12 that they won't inherit the land, but will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So, and that's fulfilling uh, a Psalm, I believe it's Psalm 122. But he tells them that in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18, where uh, he says that they won't inherit land. So this is referring back, this is what the priests had, the Levitical priests. They didn't inherit land, right? So you see the, the, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, they had lands, Right, but the Levitical priests weren't promised lands because it was going to be in God alone because they were going to serve in his priesthood. And that's exactly what Jesus is drawing on that Peter, the apostles, they're going to be ordained priests serving in Jesus alone. So then we fast forward to John 17, so the, the end of Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is also full of day of atonement and priesthood motifs. And you see in Leviticus 16, 17, that the day of atonement ritual consisted of three parts. The first part was the atonement for the high priest himself, and then for his people, or i.e. the rest of the priest, and for the entire people. So those three parts. So we find that exact same uh, thing happening in John 17. First, Jesus prays for himself, verses 1 through 5, chapter 17. Then the apostles, i.e. the rest of his priests, in uh, verses 6 through 19. And then for the entire church, verses 20 through 26. Exactly what happened in Leviticus. So in Jesus' time, the Day of Atonement ritual was marked by the pronunciation of the divine name. So the only day when Yahweh was pronounced, when the high priest would bless the people after the atonement ritual. So when you look through John 17, and you'll find many references to Jesus making known the Father's name. Emphasis added. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 6, verse 12, and verse 26, right? So Jesus is making known the Father's name. This is back to like the Day of Atonement. Yahweh is being pronounced in the Holy of Holies. Finally, Jesus speaks of consecrating or sanctifying the apostles in John 17, 17 through 19. This is the Greek word heizo, I think I got that right, which is applied to male human beings in the Old Testament almost exclusively in the context of priestly ordination. The sense is that the apostles are being ordained to serve as priests of the new covenant. So thus, the beginning and end of the Last Supper discourse in uh, John 13 and 17 is marked by themes of day of atonement and priestly ordination and service. Then Jesus and the apostles leave the upper room and the passion ensues. When they reconvene in the upper room after the resurrection in John 20, uh, 19-23, Jesus completes their ordination by bestowing on them the Holy Spirit, which will then empower them to perform the priestly role of the mediation of forgiveness of sins and all of those things that come with the priesthood that we just went through. So those four things 
were to offer sacrifice, mediate the forgiveness of sins, interpret the law, and serving in the temple. So I hope that this was extremely fruitful, and I hope this makes you fall in love with the priesthood even more. And truly, please pray for our priest. This is like these guys are so conformed to the heart of Jesus on the day of their ordination. This is in the new covenant of Jesus himself. And there is nothing more profound that I can think of than Jesus working through his priests and all the different ways that they do. And we're going to talk about what priests do in other episodes. And like, we're going to talk about later why calling priests father and their celibacy and all of those things as well. But I just wanted to talk about the institution of Jesus's priesthood that he gave that is only found in the Catholic church and in Orthodox church. But, um, that one holy catholic and apostolic church and please pray for all your priests support them all we love you guys we thank you so much for that that call you made yourself eunuchs for the kingdom of god and all our consecrated brothers and sisters whether it's a priesthood or religious life we just thank you guys so much for what you do for jesus's church and we love you we're praying for you and god bless you and mary keep you and we're gonna talk uh later god bless you guys